Epigenetics Podcast, Episode 11. Dosage Compensation Welcome to the 11th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Asifa Akta from the Max Planck Institute of Epigenetics in Freiburg. And I'm happy now to talk to you during the EMBO workshop, Chromatin and Epigenetics. Thank you, Asifa, for joining me today. Thank you. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience because they might not know you. Um, you were born in Pakistan and after you studied biology, you got your PhD from the Imperial Cancer Research Fund in London. And then you did your postdoc at the EMBL in Heidelberg, where we are today, and at the Adolf Butenland Institute in Munich. Um, then in 2001, you became research group leader at the EMBL and then transferred to the MPI in Freiburg, where you then became director in 2013. And you are still there now, right? So a question that we had now in the, in the preface of this episode is, uh, how did you come from Pakistan to Germany or mm -hmm. first to the UK and then to... Yeah, so I came from Pakistan to France. Actually, okay. my parents uh, live in Paris. Oh. And we moved because my father was working for a bank. So he was stationed in the in the Paris branch. And so that's where actually I did uh, most of my uh, secondary education and was going through the English system of education because we moved between countries. We were also in the United Arab Emirates in between, again, because of my father's work. But I followed through the English system of education, so I'd end up doing A-levels. And then it was a natural move to go to the UK to do university. Yeah. And that's how I ended up uh, moving to London. Did you plan to come to Germany or was the plan rather to stay in yeah, the UK? So move to uh, Germany was at the level of... So if we just go back from after my doing my PhD, uh, doing my university, I then did my PhD um, in the UK as well. And then looking for uh, postdoc positions. Um, I was scanning around okay. different uh, places in the UK, in the US, um, also in Germany, and um, found Embel as a very nice place to do uh, postdoc. And that's how I landed in Germany. How did you become interested in biology in the first place? Were you yeah. interested in biology all the way? Yeah, up? again, you know, this is one of these things that were generally um, interesting to me already as a student. Um, Uh, but what I distinctly remember, uh, again, at the time uh, when I was approaching A-levels, that they had very basic uh, description of DNA and, you know, uh, genetic information, transcription. And I thought that was pretty cool and interesting. Um, but, of course, this was just, you know, very much superficial information uh, that we had. But then when I really started doing biology at the university and was doing uh, internship during this time to do these small, um, you know, short-term experiments, that's when I realized that actually this doing experiments was extremely exciting and also discovering something new was extremely exciting. Um, and that until then, I didn't really know where what I wanted to do. Um, but these little short-term uh, research projects really um, enlightened me as far as okay. I can see my interest in research and I thought this is exactly what I want to do and want to do a PhD and that was really the concrete moment. So then you obviously moved on to, to do your PhD. Um, was it more like you found your topic or was it the other way around that your topic found you? 
No, I mean, this is where, again, you know, d during the, the university time, my interest in transcription regulation and how things are regulated become became much more lesser refined. So I was looking for labs that were interested in transcription regulation, and that's how I ended up looking for labs at Imperial Cancer Research Fund because there were some leading scientists uh, in that institute um, that were uh, working there. And interestingly, you know, my first stop uh, at ICRF was in the lab of David Bentley. Uh, but after a few months, he moved to Toronto. Oh, okay. And at the time, I didn't want to move uh, countries. And luckily, um, on the same floor, we had Richard Treisman, who we used to have joint group meetings with. Um, and he was kind enough to adopt me. <laughs> and so the rest of my PhD was done in his lab. And it has been a fantastic experience to be in his lab. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. And now you're working on the MSL complex and also on dosage compensation. Dosage compensation. In an earlier episode, I spoke to Edith Hurd about inactivation in, in mammals. Um, and the mechanism I found out now doing research for this episode is different in Drosophila that you work on and in mammals that uh, Edith is doing her work. How is it different and why, probably? Yeah, yeah why is it an interesting question, but it's definitely uh, different. Um, But very excitingly different, you know, in mammals, uh, females will activate one of the X chromosomes randomly, but then this decision, once it's made, is remembered. While flies uh, do this in the males by the single male X chromosome, compared to the females who have two X chromosome, uh, basically do double duty and express this single X chromosome twofold to upregulate. So you basically have opposite outcomes of dosage compensation in the mammalian system versus the Drosophila system. In mammals, we are inactivating and in Drosophila, we are upregulating. Um, uh, why this is done this way? I think flies are pretty clever actually uh, to do it this way because they take care of two things. They don't only take care of X to autosome ratio because all the autosome come in pairs and in the yeah. male, then the sex chromosome is singular, but also take care of male to female difference between X and um, X and Y chromosomes. Um, but, you know, despite this difference in, you know, the overall outcome, one is activating and one is repressing, uh, there are actually also similarities. You know, if you look at uh, it from the chromosomal perspective, you know, majority of the genes on the X chromosome are getting cis-regulated in one or the other way. So there is some similarity there. And also the two large non-coding RNAs in the Drosophila system very much are involved in regulating this transcription regulation. And this is very reminiscent of EXIST, which actually codes the inactive X chromosome and is involved in repression. So if you take a one step back, there are similarities in how large non-coding RNAs are cis-acting on the chromosome that is going to be regulated. So if you look at it from, you know, um, bigger picture perspective, both X chromosomes in flies and mammals provide a very interesting system to look at gene regulation, how genes are dosage compensated, upregulated or downregulated. But also, interestingly, in both systems, not every gene is dosage compensated. So despite yeah, so this, escapers. so they, they are escapers in both systems. So how certain genes escape, so how are the boundaries of what to regulate? How is the, the logic behind this is very interesting, especially because if you just look at the linear piece of DNA, it's not very easy to understand the logic. It's not that every second gene is compensated. Yeah. Um, and how that logic is, uh, you know, uh, is worked out by the cell is basically the biggest challenge that we would like to understand. So would you say to sum this all up that um, it's basically 
similar mechanism, but in the end, it's a different outcome. Well, because I think the mechanisms are different. I think there's uh, the strategies that are used are very distinct. Um, but at the global level, what is similar is that you're operating on a, a chromosomal level. Uh, but the outcomes are, of course, totally different. Yeah. The proteins are different. Uh, but maybe the underlying principle to regulate a chromosome is is that level of similar, similarity that I'm talking about. So the complex you're focusing on is the MSL complex, um, which is one of the main components of this dosage compensation pathway. Mm -hmm. And in a paper in 2011 in NSMB, you described the structure of this MSL complex and how it acts together with MOF. How, mm -hmm. how does this work? Yeah. So maybe just before I go into the structure, yeah. just to kind of introduce you what the MSL complex is and how it was identified. So that, you know, may... MSL complex stands for male-specific lethal complex. So the heroes of, of genetics, you know, um, father figures um, in the field who have been working on, on this really revealed through genetic screens uh, factors that are important for dosage compensation because their absence causes male-specific lethality. So if you don't have these factors, males are dead. This includes uh, proteins and also these large non-coding RNAs. Hence the name of this complex, male-specific lethal complex. What is also very interesting is that not only they give very interesting phenotype, all these proteins localize very beautifully on the X chromosome. So, so the, you can stain them? You, when you stain them using antibodies or you do RNA fish for the RNA, you will immediately recognize what is X and what is autosome. So this again, you know, just the, the visualization of this entire process again makes you think, you know, how is this achieved? How does this complex able to recognize in this milieu um, of all the chromosomes, this is where I want to go. And the Drosophila system is, is even more um, interesting from that perspective because we have been able to take pieces of the X chromosome, put it on an autosomal location to ask, can the, the X chromosome be recognized only in its, its normal location? Or would this complex find it out of context? It's like finding your mommy <laughs> if you were going shopping in a busy street and suddenly losing Yeah losing her. But this complex does that. You will be able to recognize very beautifully this one sharp band where the X chromosomal sequences are resi residing. So it's able to recognize it out of context. So um, so this is just to give you, uh, you know, a, a brief overview of, of the history of how these proteins were originally identified, which is namely by genetics. But in the meantime, there's plenty of biochemical evidence. And we have, of course, also contributed to the, this, that this really is a is a core complex um, of four proteins that interact, um, MSL1, MSL2, MSL3, and MOF. But in addition, there is an RNA helicase and these two ROCs RNAs that are part of this complex. And altogether, they form this very robust entity that um, is regulating the X chromosome. Now, how the structure is assembled, which was the original question you asked, is actually also intricate. We don't understand everything about this. By using, um, you know, substructures of the complex, we know that MSL1 is basically the scaffold protein of the complex. It dimerizes and uses then, this dimerization is used by MSL2, which is the ubiquitin ligase in the complex, um, to dock on. And then basically just imagine... Um, MSL2 being like an inverted Y chromosome. The 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 basically the bottom part is where the dimerization happens, but then it has its two legs, and this is where MOF and MSL3 reside. Um, so they don't need dimerization for interaction. So it's a het heterodimeric um, complex that in that works together, 
And of course, you know, this is based on subcomplexes. It'll be really fantastic to actually do either cryo EM microscopy mm-hmm. or crystallography to get how th- to see how the whole complex would work. How is the, the binding then achieved to the X chromosome? Is it more DNA f- sequence specific? Is it more chromatin? Mm-hmm. histone modification based or what yeah is? i think again this is one of the biggest challenge that is still unsolved um in the field uh there are certain sequences um present on the on uh, on the x chromosome um that have the potential to recruit but such sequences are also present on autosomes so um it's not clear how x chromosome Uh, specificity is achieved is it purely dna based it's very difficult to imagine that it's only dna based i think it's a composition of many different factors that that make it happen and definitely these non-coding rnas that are expressed from the x chromosome play a very important role in that specificity because uh, they are male specifically expressed and there are certain male specific factors um, that are expressed that will help Uh, localize the rest of the proteins that are not male specifically expressed to target. So later on, you published a paper in 2012 in Cell, which investigated the function of MOF. Um, so what is the function of MOF and uh, what makes it so special then for Drosophila? Yeah, I mean, MOF always comes uh, to us and brings us surprises. <laughs> so um, already at that time, we realized, you know, from the phenotype and What we had known before, we thought that it only had an X chromosome specific function. But by really performing detailed binding analysis in males and females, we realized that actually it's a protein that not only binds to the X chromosome, but also binds to promoters uh, of autosomes. So it has actually two functions, not only X, but autosomes. But in the meantime, uh, in subsequent experiments, we were also able to show that it's also residing in two distinct complexes, not only the MSL complex that everybody knew about, but this um, new complex that we called non-specific lethal complex because all the proteins associated with this complex are essential. And this is the complex that targets all these autosomes uh, with MOF. So MOF basically has two lives um, in the cell. And of course, the the challenge for us is to understand how the tug of war between these two complexes happen You know, is MOF, uh, you know, sometimes in this complex and sometimes in that complex, is there exchange between the two complexes? Do they never see each other, um, you know, in the cellular milieu? These are questions that we are trying to understand at the moment. Yeah, this is also uh, my next question would have been, what what is, uh, you investigated this, right? Uh, the function of MOF in this MSL and the NSL complex. Um, is there anything more to add? Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that is really very interesting is that what we realized was that these proteins are not just something exquisite that just happens in the flies. These two complexes also exist in the mammalian system. So evolutionary conserved two complexes that are taking, you know, MOF as their catalytic subunit within is is a very interesting question to ask, you know, what is happening? What are the, the, the differences and similarities? And this is one of the things that is uh, uh, really interesting in the lab because we use Drosophila system and the mammalian system to look at what has been evolutionally conserved and what has been um, diversified for function. And here we are using um, now more and more not only fly models, but also mouse models. And I have made several knockout mice uh, for also the NSL complex members. 
And interestingly, most of these proteins are essential okay. uh, also in the mammalian system, which is very exciting. Um, and another aspect that we realized, again, MOF bringing us surprises when we moved into the mammalian system, because, you know, in the Drosophila system, as I told you already, the X chromosome provides a very visual system to, to look at uh, yeah. biology because the X chromosomal territory is so beautiful to see. Um, Moving into the mammalian system, of course, we wanted to also know where does MOF localize, especially because what the is what is its function? Is it a histone? It still has to transferase. MOF is still the major histonic for license 16 acetyltransferase in both flies and mammals. So if you remove it, bulk license 16 acetylation is removed in either of these systems, which and is this great. This leads to silencing. This is an activator. In yeah. both systems, it's an activator. So you will get gene upregulation in both systems. And of course, the question that we are trying to understand in the lab is what is the contribution of the MSL versus NSL complex in the mammalian system? Um, but it looks like, you know, majority of the function at the promoters uh, in the mammalian system is dictated by the NSL complex. And this is where, again, we came to a surprise, as I was telling you, that we were trying to stain the cells to see where does it localize, especially because as we were talking right at the beginning, X inactivation happens very differently. Yeah. And since it's an activator complex, you know, we wanted to know where does it localize. And again, here we came to a surprise um, that in addition to its canonical function in the nucleus, we realized this protein also localizes to the mitochondria, which oh, is the powerhouse of the cell. So again, a novel function that we had not anticipated and Together with MOF, there were also some of the NSL complex members localizing. So that started yet again a new aspect to um, this entire story. How is the communication between nucleus and mitochondria being achieved? Especially because, you know, I find this really interesting because there are only two, um, yeah, let's say, organelles in our cell that have a genome. You know, the yeah. nuclear genome and the mitochondrial genome. And we found this complex is located in, in both of these compartments. So this might be a connection between nuclear gene expression and mitochondrial gene expression? Exactly. And that's what we showed, that uh, MOF actually uh, resides in the mitochondria, not only um, alone, but with these uh, proteins as well, and affects mitochondrial transcription uh, in these human cells, but very much is involved in metabolic control. So the type of questions we are trying to understand now is what is the communication between metabolic control and gene expression? Could it be that, you know, MOF uh, um, complex or subcomplexes that are existing in the mitochondria somehow crosstalk with the amount of metabolic activity that is needed in the cell and help tell uh, gene expression um, in the nucleus because MOF binds most of the housekeeping genes and most of the housekeeping genes are metabolic genes. Um, so how is that regulation achieved are really interesting questions that now surface, uh, you know, that we had never thought about before. So I think move from the Drosophila to the mammalian system was very interesting for us from many aspects, not only looking at this um, communication between organelles. I'm very interested in, in trying to understand how this is happening because nucleus is not working alone. Yeah, You know, there are all these uh, things that are happening in the cytoplasm, which of course help uh, gene expression or vice versa, how gene expression is dictating some of the organelle function um, are aspects that will be very interesting to study in the future. Yeah, suddenly you're, you're moving from dosage compensation to nutrition and whatever environmental effects on gene regulation because the the proteins are made in the nucleus, right? Yeah, and of the, course. And yeah. then they need to go, uh, I mean, the mRNA is made in the nucleus and then they need to go somewhere, yeah. somehow to the mitochondria, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, yeah. and I'm very interested in this crosstalk between epigenetic and, and metabolic regulation. 
And of course, you know, when you invoke uh, metabolic demand, um, you know, uh, into the system, it's interesting to see that every organ in our body needs, uh, you know, metabolic control differently and responds also differently to nutrients and um, energy levels. So it could be that when we knock out morph and its components in different uh, cell types, we have different context-specific um, you know, outcomes because also the metabolic demands of these cells are, is different. And so, also in different time of the day, right? Exactly. <laughs> so how, yeah, different time of the day, so circadian rhythms could be very interesting to look at. We haven't really looked at that yet. But uh, again, you know, it makes us think about this entire set of complexes in a very different manner that we used to think before. So it uh, changes the direction of a lab a little bit, right? Yes. Well, I guess, you know, I think it adds a new dimension to the lab. So, of course, the core is still um, trying to understand this big question of how X chromosome is regulated. But this fundamental question, although it only affects twofold regulation, has a lot of intricate fine-tuning, yeah. which is beautiful to understand. Uh, but to be able to understand this completely... I think we have to diversify into different um, areas to be able to then maybe come back from the lessons we learn, yeah. maybe in the mammalian system, because we were not even able to explore this um, in the Drosophila system. So I think really the challenge, but also maybe the um, a, a good strategy to go forward is to actually learn from either of these systems to then synthesize the bigger picture in which this very important histoencephalic transfer is, is working, uh, because it's essential. Uh, yeah. also in the mammalian system. So you also mentioned uh, uh, before um, that uh, it's not only proteins in this complex, but also non-coding RNAs. How do yeah. they con contribute to the working of this machinery? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the very exciting aspects of dosage compensation is in general, be it exon activation or dosage compensation in Drosophila. Uh, in the flies, um, as I said before, there are two large non-coding RNAs um, that contribute towards this regulation. Um, there is no sequence similarity between the two, but structurally they have stem loops that are very help, uh, important for docking the proteins, um, uh, the MSL proteins. And what we think is that is they're very important for spreading of the complex along the X chromosome. So like, then, then it's again a sequence-specific thing maybe? Well, the... I would say maybe there is a combination of, of maybe the structural information, the way these proteins um, and RNA complexes interact. What will be, I would love to know is whether the interaction of these RNAs with the underlying DNA maybe causes some kind of special structure that helps... R loops coming. <laughs> uh, or some other kind of structures that may help uh, keep the genes open to help uh, cis-regulate. These are all questions we are trying to understand. And also how the RNAs are helping assemble and spread the complex are, you know, questions that we don't really fully understand. But definitely their absence causes male-specific lethality. So they're definitely yeah, important. important and redundant. So you only need one of the RNAs to execute the function. And the question is, how is this redundancy inbuilt, knowing that they are very different in sizes? One RNA is about 600 base pairs. The other RNA is about three and a half kilobases. Oh, that's very different. So, yeah. so how are they, they functioning? So we are looking at early development in flies to see whether this makes a difference because the RNAs are different times expressed to reveal their differences and their importance. Um, again, very interesting questions that are yet to be answered. Um, surprising because this phenomenon is known for, for years. Yeah. And now you're in 2015 in a publication in Mars Cell. You also expanded this 
study and then this area into high C and the TUD area mm -hmm. and then the spreading along the X chromosome. Mm -hmm. um, what were the findings there? Yeah. So the trigger for that, uh, doing those kind of uh, experiments was again, um, you know, this frustrating um, observation that if you just look at the linear piece of DNA, you don't find the logic of where the complex is binding and what genes are going to be regulated. So there must be something more than just looking at uh, the genes to be compensated. And that's why we uh, try to do high C experiments to look whether chromatin conformation uh, plays a role um, in um, regulating dosage compensation. And, you know, you would have maybe hoped for at least original naive hypothesis was that maybe the X chromosome will look different in males versus females. And maybe this will make a difference. But yet the very interesting and surprising But at first instant, a disappointing finding was that the X chromosome looks exactly the same between males and females. Would you be able to have see a difference between the two in the female? Probably not. No. So the, the female X chromosome looked the same as the male X chromosome. There was no, uh, let's say, global difference. So it was, let's say, poised for dosage compensation in, in, in both scenarios. But what was very interesting is that there are sites on the X chromosome that we call high affinity sites which from, um, let's say, chromatin binding experiments are known to be very, um, show very high signal for the MSL complex. And we found that those regions cluster in space. Okay. And, and from that came the idea, and that's why we proposed this conformation-based affinity model, that although if you just look at just the pure DNA sequence, um, you know, these sequences are present also somewhere else on autosomes, but because of their clustering on the X chromosome, they may be able to help basically trap the complex and this by generate specificity. And of course, by actually doing these, uh, you know, uh, clustering, you will be able to bring pieces of DNA together that in space are in proximity. But if you stretch them yeah, out, the linear chromosome, they're not. They, yeah, they will not be um, next to each other. And that's what you see, actually, when you do then further experiments and look for whether the sites that are, are present on the X chromosome What is their relationship from with the genes that are going to be compensated? And you see that definitely the proximity of the genes correlate with their, uh, let's say, extent of dosage compensation with these sites. Um, so we think definitely chromosomal topology provides a very important way to kind of uh, organize this chromosome and contributes towards this specificity that we see. But again, as I said to you before, I don't think it's just one answer that we will get is not purely the DNA sequence, yeah. it's not purely the genome topology. It's, you know, everything coming together in the right dose leads to dosage compensation. Which the name might, might infer. Um, would this then kind of be some kind of transcription machinery? Like you have the MSL complex, you have RNA polymerase there, and you have mm -hmm. everything there just to, to make more of it? Yeah, that's what I think that, you know, I think that it's all about concentrations, you know. <laughs> that you want to get the right thing at the right time and you want to concentrate it, especially because, you know, one um, aspect that maybe people don't really think about, especially for the fly system, it's not about lack of activation. The, f the female genes are also transcriptionally active. It's just that the males are two times more active. So how do you fine-tune this activity? You're going from activity to a little bit more activity. And so, you also don't have like the the relative i mean you don't have a control i mean you don't know as a male how how, how much is exactly. the female transcribing i mean you don't just know I mean. exactly so you know how is this sensing mechanism 
how much how does the cell know that now I have made two times more yeah of, you know of what <laughs> exactly but i think this is here uh, we know that at least we have some clues because the genes that are on the x chromosome um are important and essential genes um and some of them are already haploid sufficient genes so the dosage of these genes are actually important and in a recent study we have also shown that um these uh, components of this complex are not exclusively binding um to uh, x chromosomal sites but also autosomal sites and when these autosomal sites um you look at which of the genes are being bound they're again evolutionarily conserved haploid sufficient genes interestingly bound by the msl orthologs in the mammalian system so uh, it looks like there is a hidden logic to kind of sense uh, haploid sufficient genes in the fly system and in the mammalian system and i think we have now more clues than we had a few years ago so it's a very exciting time to understand what is the regulatory principle behind um finding that logic and i think i think the the clue will really come from looking at orthologs and looking at really the the mammalian in the drosophila system because i think with orthology we'll be able to figure out what is really essential um to keep the functional aspect conserved so you think that the baseline is then the transcription that you get in the same cell from non x chromosomes and still important genes housekeeping genes exactly that you know that they, that this function so what what currently what i think is that the core msl complex which is composed of proteins that are expressed males and females is the evolutionary complex that is involved in transcription regulation and it was hijacked for a specialized function to regulate the x okay. chromosome by involving these non-coding rnas and evolving male specific factors that will now help to do one specialized function but this general transcription regulation to maybe look at a uh, dosage sensitive gene is what is also conserved in the mammalian system and maybe was the the ancient function of the yeah. complex and again here i find having the non coding rna is a very elegant way to to go about yeah. this entire thing because there you can highly evolve rapidly evolve uh, these rnas and by using these these rna binding proteins and non coding rnas you're able to diversify a function um and come up with new strategies during evolution so i think that's a clever way to do it we don't have all the all the clues but this is how i think you know from the data that we have right now um very likely this is um how um maybe the logic was so in the last half an hour now <laughs> we took an exciting journey through your scientific career but um can you maybe give a short summary of your most important or most striking finding that you consider mm -hmm. yourself uh, as to be the most exciting mm -hmm. one or what we might have missed and also give a little outlook into the future what you're going or mm -hmm. want to do yeah i think you know trying to understand x chromosomal regulation and how these twofold effects are central themes that i think uh my lab has contributed from biochemical perspective genetic perspective and genomics perspective and this will continue uh, to excite us for the years to come Uh, but i think uh, this uh, diving into into the mammalian system and looking at the interface of the fly and the drosophila system um is a very exciting new area for my, for my lab because it's also bringing us new uh, new knowledge uh, and new aspects that we totally underappreciated about the complex and i think one aspect that i'm very excited about um and didn't we didn't really discuss that is that we are not stop stopping at mice um we also um move, are moving into the human system 
And here I have been very fortunate to collaborate uh, with a cohort of clinicians recently uh, where we identified uh, mutations in MSL3, which is the core component of the complex, and were able to define a new syndrome where the loss of this protein that is part of the core complex leads to um, extremely reduced lysine 16 acetylation uh, in human patients, and which is associated with developmental um, um, disorder, uh, a neurological disorder, and the challenge is to try to understand how we can understand from basic molecular fundamental biology uh, information that we can then help these patients. So for me, the biggest challenge will be to basically uh, look at this interface, use fundamental basic research to be able to then address um, how, uh, you know, in these syndromes where more and more MSL and NSL complex members are affected, um, what is going wrong? Because it yep. looks like even, you know, de novo mutations where you are, let's say, heterozygous for the wild type protein um, is already sufficient to cause a disease state. And of course, these proteins are essential. So the question is, how can what can we learn from this disease situation um, and use, uh, let's say, the power of mouse genetics to be able to come a bit closer? And since this MOF is a histonecetal transferase, uh, maybe in the future we are able to find targets that are specifically able to reduce this activity or enhance this activity because, um, again, both MSL and NSL complex members are involved in not only syndromes, uh, but also in, in diseases like cancer. So the cells misregulate, you know, up or down regulate the system. So it'll be really interesting to uh, find means to modulate this activity to be able to um, help also um, you know, go into the avenue of epigenetic therapy. I think these are big challenges in front of us, but I think we can we can move forward in a very interesting manner by combining really these aspects and learning from what the new things this complex is telling us as we move into the system and not shy away from unexpected results. And I mean, you have a nice system now in place. You can go from Drosophila over mice and you don't have to, I mean, you, you do the observation in humans, but you can go back to the Drosophila and mice, mouse system to just do manipulations yes. there and, and, and find out new stuff. A question that I had forgot to ask earlier is how conserved are those proteins over those three uh, model or models here? Yeah, the, they're all conserved. That's what I said. This is one of the first things when we were purifying complexes from Drosophila and mammals from my very, very early work. We already showed that both of these complexes that contain this acetyltransferase, MSL and NSL complex, are conserved all the way to humans. So what is the level of con conservation? Is it like... 100% no, or 90%? Or well, the it? proteins are conserved. They are domains within yeah. the proteins that are extremely conserved. Of course, there are regions within the proteins that are um, either disordered or are highly evolving. And this is where probably the interesting aspect lie because, you know, let's say the head domain is super conserved mm -hmm. and is responsible for lysine 16 acetylation. But uh, other proteins in the complex have disordered domains that only become structured about interaction with the rest of the protein. Oh, right. yeah. um, And what other what interfaces these will bring for other proteins and interfaces in the um, in the cell we don't know of course but um, the core domains are conserved but there is you know different aspects that we don't even understand at the moment which brings distinct feature of their regulation. So this was very interesting. Thank you, Asifa, for your time. This was the eleventh episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We're happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. 
If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotive.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes or Spotify. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motive blog, motivations at activemotive.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. Mm -hmm.